Hey, this is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today, we have a very exciting episode for you. We're going to talk about seed beads, designs and ideas. We're going to talk about rockhounding history in the United States. We are going to talk about Western Colorado, rockhounding there. We're going to talk about how rockhounders have been used to find rare minerals. We're going to talk about the agate rush. You've heard of the gold rush? This is the agate rush. We're going to touch on rockhounding at Redondo and Hermosa beaches in California. 15 rarest gemstones in the world, Mars updates, and so much more, guys. Alright guys, thanks for tuning in to Radical Rocks. Um, before we get into it, I want to encourage you all to go to RadicalRocks.com and connect with our social media, um, with all the good stuff we've got there, videos and such. And I want to tell you about something we've got planned for the future, is a subscriber podcast. We're still going to do all the podcasts that we normally do with all the latest information um, good stories and highlights on rocks, minerals, gems, events, uh, and topics, fossils, things like that. All that good stuff like we do pretty much every week. We're going to do that, but this is going to include some very specific topics um, that will be much more educational and useful for serious rockhound and lapidarius and silversmithing and all that good stuff uh, mineral collectors and things like that much more specific um, and also archives to back uh, episodes that we have we're going to go through those and clean those up and put back episodes in there for the subscriber base so let's get right into today's show this is episode 126 of season 2 and we are going to get right into it and talk about companies preparing for space mining it's really happening uh we've been talking about it for years we have NASA and other space ag- agencies from around the world sampling and tallying up what minerals are out there at thomasnet.com, Hugo Britt uh, talked about companies are preparing for space mining. And there's quite a bit of insights here in this article about um, from the history of talking about doing this to landing on the moon and why would we want to be doing mining that is not on Earth because, you know, space exploration is very expensive. 
although there's a lot of people who are working on making that much more affordable. So one of the reasons is there are rare earth materials that are abundant in space. Now, there is about 2 million near-earth asteroids that are just chucked, filled with rare earth minerals, precious metals, iron, nickel. Uh, Take the moon, for example. It holds and contains helium-3, utrillium, satyrium, and lithium, while Mars contains an abundance of magnesium, aluminum, titanium, iron, and chromium, and trace amounts of lithium, cobalt, tungsten, and other metals. So it's very important. Um, Also, water is on some of these other planets, which can be used through a process called hydrolysis as rocket fuel. And you've probably heard... um, this being spoken of as being used to help make a mission to Mars with um, manned, a manned space flight to Mars and back could be greatly helped if they're able to obtain some water or something that like that that they could use as a fuel. And they're looking now, hoping and uh, hoping that they find something. So also the Earth is fragile, right? We all live here. Um, you know, we can only dig up so much. Uh, we can only process so much, um, in theory. And, um, I have a whole nother idea about minerals and things being depleted, but that's another subject for another time. But the point is, is people can run out of a particular mineral on the earth and mining planets or the moon or asteroids is preferable because um, that's not considered something that uh, maintains our life. Um, I would say the moon definitely maintains our life because it keeps the oceans going. It's just the right size, just the right diameter, um, just the right gravity, just the right distance. Um, Otherwise, if it was bigger or smaller or further or closer, Uh, We wouldn't have our oceans as we know them and life would not be here as we know it today. So that's also debatable whether these other planets and things are really just lifeless rocks. So another thing about opening up space for commercial activities is a lot of discoveries could be made, right? Um, How would the mining be done? Well, robots could be done. Um, The article goes on to talk about off-Earth mining and space law, which is an interesting read there. They've got some links if you want to find out about that. But uh, definitely there is the ability for companies, and they are preparing the way for mining in space. iSpace, which is in Japan, this helps companies access new business opportunities on the moon, including extraction of water and mineral resources and they want to start a space-based economy. Well, that makes sense since Japan's economy is uh, not doing so great. Might as well try to go start it up somewhere else, right? They don't have a lot of resources in Japan from uh, minerals and stuff, the way I understand it. Now, Offworld is an AI company. They want to be involved in the heavy lifting, building robots, 
to do mining on Earth, the Moon, asteroids, and Mars. And then there's actually a company out of the United Kingdom called the Asteroid Mining Corporation. Uh, this is a crowdfunded venture that uh, is set to put uh, satellites in 2020. The mission's called El Dorado, which they're going to be doing a spectral, which is a way of looking at the different minerals of some 5,000 asteroids to be able to identify which ones are worth mining. And uh, other companies as well are looking at getting into the space mining. Very interesting. Now, on the Mining Journal, uh, if you're serious about mining, uh, maybe not rock hounding, but mining, then you have probably heard of the Mining Journal. On August the 24th, Kate Sigala wrote an article on the Cliffs Shaft Mine Museum making a record year. And uh, this area is at the Cliffs Shaft uh, Mine Museum is in Ishpeming, which is in Minnesota, I believe. Yes, Minnesota. And uh, they have quite a nice rock and mineral collection there. You can buy rocks. They have over 500 mineral specimens um, that are local um, to that area. They have a mineral club, uh, Ish Pygmings Rock and Mineral Club, underground iron ore carts, a working blacksmith forge, a working rock sh uh, shop, a 170-ton iron ore haul truck, a 30-ton shovel bucket, and a large collection of historical mining equipment and artifacts. So pretty cool stuff that you can do there. If you want to find this out, just go to miningjournal.net and um, look up Cliffs Shaft Mine Museum marking Make, it should say making, but it says marking record year. So that's pretty cool if you want to check that out. In Mars, the information seems kind of redundant, but on space.com by Mike Wall, he writes, Mars rover curiosity reaches intriguing transition zone on the red planet. And they have video there that you can check out. And uh, the rover going to this red area, this patch of ground here, which they feel will lead to more information on the climates. Of course, they are around the Gale uh, Crater, which is a huge, huge crater uh, at the base of a large mountain that I think goes five miles up in the air. Mount Sharp it is. So they've been looking in these foothills now for um, the last several weeks that I know of and looking through these clay-rich uh, rocks that they're finding trying to see if there is some proof of water. They have found some salty minerals, uh, sulfates, uh, kind of like salt. So they think that that could uh, indicate some things. But they've got a couple videos here, and um, they talk about uh, this isn't the only robot here. There's going to be a couple of them, the Perseverance, the Insight Lander, um, the in ingenuity flew around the red planet uh it's going to conduct 12 flights or has conducted 12 flights as of today uh china is over there uh looking for buried ice and water with their uh sarong rover that's uh came down in may it says so a lot going on uh on mars right now everybody seems to be kind of in a rush to do something 
Now, we do a lot of topics on rare gemstones. This article um, did impress me as one that uh, spotted out a couple of rare gemstones that you don't typically hear about. The tealmango.com. Um, it's teal, T-E-A-L, mango, M-A-N-G-O, dot com, the teal, mango, dot com, by R. Chana Cabre, and this was on the 19th, and they go into these different gemstones, the rarest ones in the world. Um, some of them are only found in very few locations. One that they talk about, uh, Amolite. Amolite is a beautiful stone. It looks kind of like a fire agate in a way, or like if you've ever seen the uh, iridescence on a really cool piece of... Um, uh, now I can't think of the name of it. Lepidite? No, I can't think. But it looks kind of like a fire agate. It's got this gr uh, bluish uh, at the tip. It's got a green iridescent and then gold and orange iridescent. They say it's a rare gemstone, the amylite. It's an organic gemstone that's similar to coral or shell that derived from sea animals. It can only be found in limited deposits in the United States Rocky Mountains. Now, this would be one that I would definitely want on my collection. They have one here in a cabochon. Uh, with gold, uh, uh, like set in gold. Very pretty, oval-shaped capuchon. It is a very valuable gemstone because of the unique property that shows innumerable incandescent colors, including any color of the rainbow on the stone. Um, there's a very limited availability of this stone. It makes it highly valuable. It is directly proportional to the number of colors, the quality of the stone, um, the pattern, and such. Tanzanite. We're very familiar with Tanzanite. We've talked about it many times. It's only found in uh, Tanzania at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, beautiful blue-purple uh, gemstone. Uh, which is really a um, uh, a zoisite uh, type of mineral. Um, trying to think what what mineral it is now. Now I can't think. I'm losing my marbles here. But anyway, it is uh, the only place that you can find that color of uh, and find this tanzanite. Red diamonds now. I think we've mentioned this before, quite beautiful because the amount of color refracted in these red diamonds makes them just really sparkle. They have significant value and are very rare. The color uh, variations of red diamonds, um, depending on how red it is, will make it... Uh, depend on how uh, valuable it will, will be. But the redder it is and the clearer it is and the quality it is, it is going to be the most expensive type of diamond when you have a beautiful, bright red diamond in this. Uh, the one diamond in particular, the I'm not sure what it's called, um, says the Mausafa, Sifa, Sifa? Man, that's a tough word. Um, 
it is considered the most expensive red diamond, which is said to be priced around $8 million. Crazy. That's a lot of money for a gemstone. Alexandrite, we've talked about. This is a beautiful gemstone. I have one that I set in a gemstone in a uh, setting for my wife. It has some beautiful color changes. can go from blue to green to reds to browns. It is a chrysoberyl, so it is related to uh, emeralds and such. And uh, alexandrite can also be an alternative uh, birthstone for, for June, for the month of June. Much uh, more desirable than a pearl, in my opinion. But, you know, to each his own it is quite beautiful. Very expensive. You might have to shell out over $30,000 per carat to find yourself a very nice quality alexandrite. Um, yeah, mine is only like a third of a carat. So, hey, you know, 10000 bucks, I'll take it. Now, here's the next one on the list. Painite. Painite was only discovered in 1951 by a British gemologist named Arthur Charles Davy Payne in Burma. And it's a beautiful red, rich color. And um, it was mentioned in the Guinness's, uh, Guinness's Book of World Records as one of the world's rarest minerals, or as the world's rarest mineral. I don't know if it still holds that. Um, but it says there's only two specimens of this gemstone existing at that time. By 2004, um, 24 of these panite stones were discovered. So, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of them. Uh, it said there is about 1,000 panite gemstones available right now, thanks to Miramar, which opened a couple mines in the recent years to produce this gemstone. Uh, very small in comparison to diamonds, which over 133 million carats are produced approximately every year. Now, here's another dreamy gemstone, spectacular, muscovite. Muscovite, um, wow, this thing is amazing. It looks like a quartz crystal with black inside of it and clear, and it has these rods that are iridescent and rainbow-colored that are several of them. There's uh, over a dozen of them in this little stone here. Muscovite happened to be an unknown gemstone until it was discovered in 1967. It was found at the Musgravite Range in South Australia, and later these dark blue, it says here, dark blue gemstones were also discovered in very limited quantities in Antarctica, Madagascar, and Greenland. And uh, there are only eight specimens of Musgravite that are recognized by the Gemologist Institute of America as of 2005. So I'm sure there's more of them out there by now. Now here's a rare gemstone that you may have seen. Larimar. Larimar is a cool, beautiful blue. It can only be found near the mountain range of Dominica Republic in the Caribbean. Uh, Larimar is a variety of uh, silica mineral. Uh, it is a beautiful light blue to sometimes a little bit of green blue and deep blue. Most desirable is the blues and the deep blue. It was uh, rediscovered in 1974 
and um, named Larimar at that time. In after 1970, proper mining of the Larimar started, and it has become. Uh, it was very available uh, 10, 20 years after that. Now it is becoming very rare, and um, there's only limited amounts of gemstones coming out of that area. The next rare gemstone was discovered by Richard Taafe. It's T-A-A-F-F-E. And Taafeite is very similar to spinel, um, and it's tough to identify. It comes in shades of uh, purple, pink, and almost a peach color. It was discovered uh, in, uh, it was cut uh, by this Richard uh, Taffy in Ireland in the year 1945. And um, other specimens have been found by other gemologists. The main source of these rare precious gemstones is found in Sri Lanka, while a few stones are from China and Tanzania. So only 50 of these Taifite gemstones have ever been found, making them run of the rarest gemstones on the planet. The next one is jadeite. We've talked about jadeite. Very expensive uh, variety of jade, much more valuable than nephrite. Um, it can be quite beautiful uh, gemstone, very desirable by the ancient Chinese and, and everyone today as well. The color uh, ranges from white to pale apple green to deep jade green. You can also find it in some very rare colors, bluish, green, pink, and lavender, along with uh, a few other rare colors that pop up from time to time. I found some black uh, jade, but it was nephrite jade. Red burl. Red burl, um, this can be found in Utah here in the United States, but it's very rare. Um, it does look much um, like a ruby, basically. Um, it's the same family. This gemstone gets its uh, red color from trace amounts of magnanese, uh, bixbite, red emerald, and scarlet emerald are other names given to red burl. Now, according to the Geological Survey, only one red beryl crystal is found in every 150,000 gem quality diamonds. So it's very rare. It can be found in a few locations in Utah, New Mexico, and Mexico. Red beryl is said to be 8,000 times rarer than similar rubies, which, of course, rubies are very expensive as well. Uh, black opal, we've talked about this. The Lightning Ridge in Australia, very beautiful black uh, background with all the colors of the rainbow. Um, it is a fire opal um, that will take your breath away. Another stone, which is quite rare, is Grand Durite. And it is a beautiful blue topaz color, uh, almost a blue-green, found in Madagascar in 1902. Um, it's kind of uh, numerous at this time, but gem quality stones are pretty rare, mostly found in Madagascar and St. Uh, Sri Lanka for now. Benedite, uh, bentonite, we've talked about many times before, San Benito, uh, ben Benito River uh, and in the canyons there. Now another stone, it's a beautiful dark, dark blue, very rare by the way, much rarer than diamonds. Um, you biggest one you can get 
usually is maybe a third carat. If you find a half carat or carat one, yes, that is big, big money. Now, the next one is a beautiful pink gemstone, um, perdrilrit, per, prodriteite. Prodriteite is a beautiful light pink colored gemstone that was found in Mount St. Hilaire in Quebec, Canada in the 1960s. Um, the biggest one is at the Smithsonian uh, uh, Museum. It's 9.41 carats and uh, very pretty. It wasn't found until uh, 2000. Now, Jeremy Javite. Jeremy Javite is a very rare gemstone first found in Siberia's Lake Balkala in the year 1833. It is a light purple or light lavender color gemstone. Uh, crystals are often found colorless, while lighter shades of yellow and blue are also found. The rarest, most desirable ones are probably going to be your blues and reds. So that includes the 15 most valuable rare or rare gemstones. Some of them are very valuable in the world. Now, the Maple Ridge Pit Meadows News at mapleridgenews.com tells us about their knife making workshop. Um, this just came out a couple days ago, so it's probably going to be this weekend. But um, the Lapidary Club here, according to Colleen Flanagan, Flanagan um, is going to be polishing and grinding and making these knives. Um, at the Maple Ridge Lapidary Group, and one person even made a letter opener. They talk about the process in making this, and uh, so on and so forth. If you want to look that up, go ahead and do it. There's pictures of people working here at the club, so that ought to be a good time, an interesting time. All right, now, this Let's see, one more human interest, and then I'm going to get into the story that I think is the main one of the night. Um, visit Rocks and Mineral Club display at Steele County Free Fair. Let's see, hopefully this isn't over. This was on the 18th, so it should not be over. That's about all they're telling me right there. Um, if you're in that area, Steele County Fair then you might want to check that out. That's in Minnesota. Go to southernminn.com and look up Visit the Rocks and Minerals Club's display at the Steele County Free Fair. So it sounds like it's free. All right, now I want to talk to you about some of the subjects that I told you in the beginning. Um, the Beacon seniornews.com there is a really cool article about America's rockhounding romance with the West Scott Warren of the Grand Junction Gym and Mineral Club wrote this article that really hits on some cool topics um, first off he talks about how amateur geologists really shaped the Colorado culture but and he talks about the history of rock hounding. He says here that 
Carving and polishing stones as far as something that sweeps a nation didn't really take place until about the 1930s. That's when it really became popular um, with electricity and things like that available. Um, people able to buy smaller motors. They could collect in the American West and throughout the country varieties of agates, jasper, petrified wood, and other precious stones that they could pick up and make into beautiful pieces of art, which really created an agate rush. This agate rush was also empowered by rock and gym clubs, which started popping up in the as early as the late 30s, but primarily in the 40s and 50s. Really, many more clubs started popping up, and they fostered the the hobby. This was a family event, um, especially near the 50s when the roads uh, started to get built. Uh, you know, Route 66 and other ones. People began to be able to take vacations in this country. Um, the Great Depression was over, and uh, the the West was looking pretty good. People were out there, and as they would stop, um, they would look in the canyons and such and find some of these gyms. And some some of the gyms were looked over by the early prospectors who were looking for gold and uh, strategic metals and things like that. Lapidary rocks were really not looked at as much value unless they were more rare gemstones um, that could be sold uh, in the United States and abroad. Rock shops became a popular desert highway thing where vacationers would stop and um, buy some polished stones and get interested in the hobby. And after World War II, uh, my grandfather, he came back from World War II. Uh, his was the first tank into Normandy. And um, he was also a rock collector, a rock hound, a rock cutter, lapidarius. He did gold and silver smithing. And um, these were the game. This was the name of the game, you know, getting a diamond saw and uh, carbite, silicon carbite, grinding wheels for cutting. Jim Trail Field magazines came out. Um, you know, different magazines came out, such as uh, Rock and Jim and things like that. Uh, became somewhat of a wholesome, patriotic activity. And believe it or not, through the 40s and 50s, rock hounders were really being used by the United States government to, uh, because they were urged to prospect for radioactive rocks and to sell them to the Atomic Energy Commission of the United States of America. So did you know that after World War II, there was a, a big push by our government to find these things. In fact, even to this day, there are certain strategic metals that if you locate them, there's a reward for that. Um, I don't remember where to look that up, but I'm sure if you did a little bit of um, DuckDuckGo or Google, whatever you like, uh, you would find that. In 1963, there was some 3,000 rock shops and 900 gym and mineral clubs in the United States. Um, I would be surprised if it's half that now. Rock hounders, um, back in the day, a lot of people built their own equipment, but certain companies came out and would... Uh, would uh, build equipment and sell them. A lot of those companies are still in business today, such as the Cuffington Lapidary Equipment um, Company. Now, one of the books that came out in the early days is the book 
of agates and other quartz gems, which uh, is an interesting piece of history within itself. But rock hounding uh, peaked during the 1960s. During the 70s, uh, about 1972, it said a pamphlet came out that said there was at least one rock shop for every western town with a population above 1,000. But the hobby was starting to show a decline. Television um, seems to suck people out of uh, the habit of uh, going into collect rocks and do things like this just as much as uh, computers and and smartphones are taking young people um, and turning them into couch potatoes and keeping them very physically unactive more so than I think we've ever seen. Let me get a drink here. Now, back in those days, it was a lot easier to gather rocks. Um, There's still areas that are just littered with gemstones all over. But uh, some of the more beautiful, rare uh, things were collected. Uh, Military expansion, closing off areas, um, uh, certain environmental groups closing off areas, certain government... uh, uh, politicians and such closing off areas to collect. Uh, they destroy many sites. Sometimes uh, they get bought up and houses are built there. Uh, coastal towns of Redondo Beach and Hermosa Beach in Southern California used to be popular places for collecting. But both um, are pretty barren now because the breakwaters, the boat harbors, they've they've altered the tidal action that once tossed these stones on the shore. So maybe after a big storm or something, something could still be found, but uh, much rarer now. So we see how these things uh, change. The mining laws change. Um, Everything makes it a lot tougher. Um, Yeah, it talks about Lake Superior. It talks about collecting in different areas in Oregon, um, how many of these areas were closed off. But, uh, you know, areas are still open. Uh, If you go, there's pay-to-dig places. There is Rockhound State Park, such as Deming, New Mexico, and other places. Uh, Some areas have been left open in California, Tucson, Arizona. Um, Many areas are still open, and if you look and search, you could certainly find something. So they recommend you go to the Grand Junction Gym and Mineral Club to learn more about the art of rock hounding. Um, You can look up for a gym and mineral club in your area where you live, and I highly recommend that you join that. All right, guys, I got one more uh, little topics to talk about if you're interested in it. Um, If not, I want to thank you for stopping by. I want to thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing and commenting helping us keep rock hounding alive and um, go to our website radicalrocks.com and get involved with all our social media whatever ones you want the videos and such now our friends at um, fire mountain gyms send out an email a lot of great information seed beads maybe this is not your thing but seed beads uh, are easy to work with all you need is a little needle a little thread and a little um a little creativity. There's an article here that called Seed Beads 101. You can go right to the article. They'll tell you how to deal with this, um, what brands they are, what you can do with them. 
There's charts and references that tell you how many seeds are in a package. Um, good idea to look at that. Free seed bead bracelet project you can look at here. Beat the heat with a beaded bracelet project that showcases the versatility of uh, two different types of beads with metallic and earth tone shines. Pretty cool. Um, there's Ask the Experts, which is the easiest way to read a peyote stitch pattern without getting lost. If you want to do designs with seed beads, very, very neat. I remember when I was a kid, um, people would make um, belt bands. They would attach to belts or hat bands or make uh, bracelets or necklace by just building these seed beads. Seed beads. It can have a very um, kind of a 1920s, 1930s look to it if in a particular pattern, or it can have a very Native American pattern to it. Um, it can have a, a African or Indian type. There's all kinds of ways. There's not just one look to working with seed beads. There is variety within these. Um, there's a finalist here that won the 2020 uh, contest for seed beads in shades of shimmer, serenity pool shell beads, and stunning pampas pearls, um, where she does the ocean through the eyes of a mermaid. There's a featured artist who uses seed beads with stones, cut stones and irregular stones. There is a, another article on size 11 seed beads. Uh, check beads. There's videos on how to weave beads in a Merrick's loom if you want to get a lot of beads into something very quickly. Um, a bead loom is really neat. I have an antique one myself. There's a lot that you can do with them. They're pretty cool. Um, they've got an article here on healthy business. If you're in a business sense, necklace and earring with cultured freshwater pearls and crystals. And that is it, folks. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Stop by RadicalRocks.com. Remember, rock hounds don't die, they petrify.